Hi, I'm Lewis and welcome to Searching for It. Back when I was studying for Masters, we were sent this really interesting essay in one of our modules. We were asked to imagine, first of all, that there were some super-intelligent aliens out there who are more clever than human adults to something like the same degree that human adults are more clever than children. So they'd see people, you know, in the same way that adults see children. And then, in the same way that parents will often tell their children what to do because they know best, and you'd suppose that most adults really do know what's best for their kids, the essay asked us whether these aliens would be morally justified in using their knowledge of what's best for us to control people's behaviour and, I guess, coerce them into living better lives. My first thought when reading that question was, <laughs> what a weird question. And I've no doubt that many people who haven't been exposed to the absurd debates that philosophy students often have will find this a pretty dumb question. Philosophers sometimes have a bit of a reputation of being maybe out of touch with the real world. And of all the big threats facing humanity in the near future, of all the things we have to work on, I don't think the control freak aliens rank particularly highly. But when you take a step back for a moment, look past the aliens and you think really hard about the philosophy underpinning the question, you see that there's actually a lot of really interesting baggage behind the question to be unpacked. The essay, you see, wasn't really about aliens per se. The heart of the question was asking, do you have the right to take away someone's freedom if you truly know what's best for them? Or should we sacrifice our freedom to those who know best? Or should we defend our right to essentially make wrong decisions? When you take the question at its core, as I say, it's nothing to do with some silly far-fetched scenario involving superintelligent aliens. It's a real-life concern that does affect our behaviour and our choices every single day, even if you don't always realise it. Sometimes we take these examples for granted. I mean, think about it. Every day when you step into the car and you plug in your seatbelt, at least this applies in the UK, the government has made it illegal for you to do otherwise, knowing that it's in your best interest to wear a seatbelt. And there are battles out there, all kinds of battles still being fought. I mean, does the government have a right to keep illegal drugs illegal? And if they do, do they maybe have an equal right to make alcohol and cigarettes illegal, knowing that they're every bit as harmful as many illegal drugs? Or maybe do the government at least have the right to raise taxes on them, knowing that by doing so, that would detract from our freedom to consume them, which the government knows would be in our best interests? I think quite often when we think about the government controlling our behaviour and taking away our freedoms, we don't really tend to think about it as being in our best interests. We don't really frame it in that way. And take the book 1984, for example, by George Orwell. And I'm sure a lot of you will have already read this, already seen the film, and for those of you that haven't, I'll add this to the growing list of books and films that you really should experience. But for those of you that haven't read the book, and without wanting to give away too much, so there's no spoiler alert here, the gist of the book is that it's a kind of dystopia. It portrays a worst possible outcome for humanity, and it acts as a kind of warning of what could happen if the state were to become too powerful and the citizens give away too many of their freedoms. And the lack of freedom in this book, crucially, is clearly not in the citizens' best interests. Orwell wrote 1984 against the backdrop of World War II, Nazi Germany, the rise of propaganda and totalitarianism, and you can totally see this in the world he creates. He makes this big brother state that has its eyes everywhere, that control the population, or the proles as they're called in the novel, through mass surveillance, outright false propaganda, and harsh punishments if they ever do step out of line. One of the reasons the 1984 was so well received 
is that this really was a world that people feared. It was almost the embodiment of what the Nazi regime could have become. And remember, this came at a time when the Red Scare was beginning to intensify, as people in the West were becoming increasingly fearful of the Soviet Union. In a sense, you could say that the book was a bit like what Black Mirror is today. It takes an aspect of society, it magnifies it, takes it to its logical conclusion, and makes it pretty damn scary. Luckily, Orwell's world never did become a reality, at least in the West. But having said that, we're not completely free of his warnings. Any listeners among you who kept up with Edward Snowden's leaks, or, like me, watched the Snowden film starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt, which again was awesome, by the way, might be aware of a programme called X-Keyscore, for example. So a bit of background, Edward Snowden was a computer whiz who worked with the NSA, but who became infamous for becoming a whistleblower, making public the extent of the US government surveillance programmes. And one thing that Snowden made public was, as I say, the NSA's use of a programme called X-Keyscore, which is basically a computer system that allows the US government almost unlimited access to anyone in the world with a device connected to the internet. You can track their browsing history, read their Microsoft Word documents, even watch their webcam live. It's really scary stuff. But going back to what I said when I brought up 1984, when the government takes away our civil liberties in this way, our right to freedom, our right to privacy, I don't think we really frame the debate so much as does the government have the right to take away our freedoms for our own good? Because people, I think, more want to say, you know, it's not in our interests in the first place to take away our privacy. Don't do this. The government justifies these kinds of programmes by appealing to national security, preventing terrorist threats and the like. But a lot of people would want to say, no, it's just really not in our interest to have our privacy limited so drastically. So for that reason, I don't want to spend any more time talking about 1984 and totalitarian governments. The question at play here in this episode is, can the government control our behaviour when it really is in our own interests? Or in other words, is our happiness a worthwhile reward for sacrificing our freedom? And on this note, there's a different novel that I think gives us a better foundation to explore this question. It was actually published a few years prior to 1984, back in 1932, and it's Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, who we looked at in the last episode a little bit. Like 1984, Huxley's Brave New World was intended to be written as a kind of dystopia, so an illustration of how bad the world would be when the freedom of the individual dies. But for those of you who have read Orwell but not Huxley, Huxley's approach was a bit different to Orwell, and he was actually pretty critical in 1984. Huxley wrote in a letter to Orwell around the time of the publication of 1984 that Orwell's novel was a bit too boot on the face. It was too obvious, too violent, and too tactless. As far as Huxley was concerned, if you read the How to Run a Dictatorship 101, It won't say anything about ruling through fear and violence and prisons. That's the bonehead's way of doing things. You can be much more effective if you're a bit more clever and a bit more sneaky in how you run your dictatorship. So Huxley's Brave New World didn't work through fear, punishment, surveillance, none of that. It was much more insidious, it worked more subtly and under the surface. Where 1984 is built around preventing revolutions through fear and misleading information... Brave New World is essentially built around making the world so good, and also conditioning everyone, so that nobody would want to support a revolution in the first place. Take people's jobs and their roles in society, for example. So in 1984, you've got this class system going on. The best jobs are those working for the inner state party, 
and they go to something like the top 2% of society, those who show extraordinary talent and loyalty at a young age. But for Huxley, this isn't good enough. He thinks, what about all of those who missed out on being part of the elite? Maybe they wouldn't be too happy with their lot, and maybe they'd want to revolt. So Huxley solved this problem in Brave New World by completely reimagining the class structure. Instead of proving yourself to get the best jobs, like we have today, instead, embryos are engineered from before birth to fit into certain classes and roles, and they're continually conditioned towards this throughout their childhood. So there's no danger of a member of the lower class rising up and demanding more, because they're literally, genetically and societally, hardwired to enjoy the position they're in in the first place. The whole point here is that nobody would even want to join a revolution, because they're happy with what they've got. They might not have their freedoms, given that the state determines their role in society for them, but going back to the theme of this episode, the state does it in their best interests. When they're not working in the job that they're literally biologically engineered to enjoy, they spend their free time playing games, going to the feelies, which is some kind of pornographic cinema in which you don't just see and hear the action, you actually feel it too. And when they're bored of all that, they take the rations of Soma, which is basically the super drug, the drug that makes you feel really good, really content, and comes with no hangover. Sounds great. I do think you can read Brave New World, at least this applies to me, and you find yourself questioning, is this really a dystopia, or, or is it actually a utopia? I mean, you can imagine someone reading the book and thinking, a world where everyone's happy, there's enough jobs to go round, enough people to fill them, everyone has a great work-life balance and just enjoys their life, what isn't there to love? The question here then is, does the government have the right to control our lives when they know they're doing so in our best interests? Or should we stand up and take control of our lives, even if in doing so, we might make some wrong choices that make our lives go worse? And even if in doing so, society would cease to function as smoothly and peacefully as it would have done if the government had more control over us, like they do in Brave New World? And at least for me, I find this question more illuminating when you look at it through the lens of something like Brave New World. I mean, it's more plausible for starters than the alien example. You can relate to it more. And I also think it's worth bearing in mind that the more that the state learns about the human psyche, the more pertinent that this question's going to become in real life. I mean, it's not as if Huxley's Brave New World is pure fantasy. There are advances today that could enable the state to take a certain degree of control over our lives in a way that maybe we might not object to and might even be in our best interests. One example that I find really interesting is the concept of nudges in behavioural science. So in 2008, the behavioural scientists Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein wrote a book called Nudge, in which they describe nudges as changes to the way that choices are presented to us that actually influence our behaviour, but without restricting our options or giving us incentives to pick any other given option. Now, I know that's a bit jargony, so to explain through an example, take Oxfam's donation page on their website. And you can see this for yourself on oxfam.org.uk forward slash donate. If you want to give monthly, they have three options. You have £5 a month, £20 a month and £42 a month, as well as an option to choose your own amount. Now, if the only option was to choose your own amount, the average donation would be quite a bit less than £20 a month. But by posing £20 a month as the middle donation between £5 on one side and £42 on the other, 
enough people think something like, well, five must not be enough. I don't want to be cheap, but I can't really afford 42. So the £20 a month actually becomes the most common donation. So going back to Thaler and Sunstein's definition of a nudge, the incentives to the donor haven't changed, they don't get any reward for giving more. No options are forbidden because they can still choose to give whatever they like. All that's changed here is the choice architecture, the context in which they make their choice. And this does have a very real effect on people's behaviour. And maybe a more obvious example is supermarkets, and you see this every day. By positioning chewing gum by the checkouts, the options provided haven't been changed, there are no incentives to the consumer provided, but people are influenced to buy chewing gum more frequently than they otherwise would have done because it's so convenient to pop into your trolley while you're queuing. But neither of these examples I've just said, given to charity and buying more from shops, are clearly in our best interests. But you can think of any number of examples in which the government could use nudges to control our behaviour in ways that are in our best interests. There was one occasion, for example, in Woolwich in London back in 2011, in which the area was having a real problem with antisocial behaviour, and a few local shop owners had the fronts of their shops smashed. If we were in 1984, the culprits would be promptly arrested and sent off to re-education. But instead, there was a local advertising agency who were a bit more clever. They took advantage of some of the insights of the behavioural sciences. They knew that the tone and the environment of an area can have an effect on people's moods and their behaviour. So, they spent a night spray-painting cute pictures of infants on the shutters protecting local shops, and, lo and behold, antisocial behaviour decreased in Woolwich by 18%. And although that was an advertising agency that did that, the government's been known to get involved as well. So way back before the days of Boris Johnson, back when we had David Cameron in 2010, David Cameron set up a behavioural insights team to see what kind of effects the government could have through nudges and that kind of thing. Now, if you scroll through the Behavioural Insights Team Wikipedia page, you can see all kinds of successes that they've had, and one particularly clear success involved encouraging people to fill in their tax returns on time. Now, they didn't want to increase punishments, they didn't want to reward us to pay our taxes, so instead they nudged us, and it worked. They found that sending letters saying, pay your taxes, pay your taxes, you're going to jail if you don't pay your taxes, didn't really help. But when they sent a letter that said, X percent of people have paid their taxes on time, people thought, oh, gosh, I really should pay my taxes. And it's not just nudges that the government can do to coerce us to act in certain ways. Right now, you know, we're seeing huge developments in big data that allow companies to target us with advertising for products that they know we're most likely to buy. There's a classic example from the US, I love this one, in which an angry dad stormed into a Target store just outside of Minneapolis, demanding to speak to a manager, waving coupons in everyone's face, saying, why are you sending coupons for baby items to my teenage daughter? That is so inappropriate. The manager didn't know at first, but it turned out the reason these coupons had been sent was that Target had an extremely sophisticated targeted marketing system in which they'd noticed that the daughter's recent buying habits closely mirrored the typical buying habits of newly pregnant mothers. And, lo and behold, a few days later, when the manager called the father to apologise, the father said, I had a talk with my daughter. It turns out there's been some activities in my house I hadn't been completely aware of. She's due in August. I owe you an apology. The kicker being that Target's advertising system knew that the girl was pregnant before her own father. 
So there are all kinds of ways that the government can use clever new techniques to exert control over our lives in ways that might actually make our lives go better. But here, as we touched upon earlier, it's important to consider what's more important in living our best possible life. Is it freedom? Or is it the happiness we might get from signing away some of our freedom? And in the context of Huxley's Brave New World, if we could choose to live in such a world where we had no freedom to exert any kind of meaningful control over our lives, when we were nudged in every direction that the government deems best for us, would the pleasure and contentment that we'd get in return make the trade-off worthwhile? The point of this episode isn't to give a definite answer to this question. The whole point of this podcast in general is to encourage us to think about our own conception of the good life and the life we want to lead. So it's kind of up to yourselves to determine how you want to respond to these kinds of tensions. And, you know, as these challenges to our freedoms that the state might throw at us, as they become less overt, less obvious, less boot on the face, and perhaps more aligned with our own interests in the ways we talked about earlier, I think it becomes all the more important to think about these questions and come up with our own individual responses. Because... I'm not quite sure that the traditional frameworks through which we think about our freedom is still quite as relevant in the modern world. I mean, take something like John Stuart Mill's harm principle, for example, which really is the political philosophy 101. And he says something like, you're not justified in restricting anyone else's freedom unless you're doing so in order to prevent harm to someone else. So if you're going to restrict someone's freedom for their own good, that's not a good enough reason. So in other words... You can't control someone else's behaviour for their own good. The only justification you can ever legitimately give is that you're controlling their behaviour to stop them from harming someone else. So, on the face of it, you might expect Mill to give a resounding no to a government who wanted to restrict his freedom, even if it would serve his own interests in the interests of the state. Because as long as we're not harming anyone else, the government has no right to interfere with our lives. So even if these citizens of Brave New World are made happy by the close control of the state, they shouldn't accept this because their freedom is paramount. But, as I say, I'm not sure if this principle is quite as straightforward here. Because in Brave New World, and in the developing world of nudges and big data, it's not entirely clear that it's our freedom that's being undermined in the first place. Again, during my master's studies, we actually had a lady come in from the Behavioural Insights team to deliver a guest lecture on these kind of techniques. But, unsurprisingly, she was insistent on the point that these kinds of nudges don't undermine our freedom. The crucial point for her is that nudges don't restrict our option set. If we're nudged one way or the other, we're not told we can or can't do something and nor are we punished for doing it. We just have the framework in which we're operating modified slightly to keep us on track. So for her, this is no threat to our freedom. And then in the other corner, you've got political scientists like Henrik Skaug Satra, who published a paper this year called When Nudge Comes to Shove, in which he argued that in the age of big data, like the case involving Target and the pregnant teenager, there are good reasons to think that big data and nudges really do undermine our freedom. They can be manipulative and coercive. You might even say that they're like human hacks. They exploit the known vulnerabilities of the human psyche, and it would be quite dangerous to justify all kinds of nudging on the basis of some flimsy conception of liberty. And until we decide who comes out on top here, is it the Behavioural Insights team, or is it the likes of Satra? There's no point in taking the question to the harm principle, because the harm principle is designed to tell us when we can justify infringes on our freedom, 
but we're not even sure if it's our freedom that's at stake here. Now, if we're being pedantic, Mill's actual phraseology in The Harm Principle isn't that you can't restrict someone else's freedom unless it's to prevent harm to someone else. What he actually says is you can't exercise power over someone against their will unless it's to prevent harm to someone else. But again, this is still ambiguous if we want to apply this to nudges, because even if we're being nudged in our own interests, it might still be against our will, because the whole point of nudges is that we don't give our consent to be nudged. So again, it's difficult to make sense of nudges using traditional frameworks like the harm principle. And let's consider for a moment that maybe Henrik Skaug Sektra is right, that the citizens of Brave New World did have their freedom undermined through their genetic engineering before birth, through the lessons taught to them in their sleep, and through their pre-chosen roles in society. And let's grant for a moment that we are sacrificing our freedom when the government implements policies that behavioural sciences show will influence our behaviour one way or the other. Now even then it might not be clear-cut that these infringers on our freedom are wrong. Sytra ends his paper noting that in the case of nudges, we might have to make some kind of a trade-off between our freedom that's being undermined and our happiness that's being achieved. And depending on how you want to weigh up your freedom against your happiness, you might come out on one side or the other. Now, I don't want to be hasty here. I mean, Mill is literally one of my favourite philosophers of all time. The harm principle has been hugely influential, and if we're applying it to things like 1984, it definitely helps us make sense of it. But in this changing landscape we've got now with nudges and big data that influence our behaviour in kind of more insidious ways, and it's not so obviously an infringement on our freedom, but it's still something we've got to create a response to, Maybe now we need something more sophisticated, more tailored towards these modern times, to determine our response to the brave new world, to nudges, big data and the like. How we might tailor our response here depends on our answers to a whole load of other questions that we've touched upon in this episode, such as, what does it mean to be free in the first place? Does it mean that nobody's actively controlling our behaviour? Or is it also important that we're also free from the kinds of nudges and coercions and human hacks that we've looked at today? And also you might want to ask, what is it that we actually care about when we're talking about our freedom? Do we need to actually be free? Or would it be enough if we were a citizen in a brave new world, happy and content in the belief that we're free? Is it for all intents and purposes just as good to think that we're free as it is to actually be free? And ultimately, if our freedom is restricted but our life goes better as a result of it, should we even care? Going back to the beginning of this episode, and given everything we've said since, I don't think we need to contemplate those super-intelligent aliens to consider how we want to make this trade-off between our freedom and our happiness. Instead, we can look at these kinds of trade-offs through the picture that Huxley painted for us in Brave New World, and through the very real developments in technology, psychology and science today. And using these insights, we need to make a decision about how we as individuals, and as a society, want to move forward and how much of our freedom are we happy to give away to the government. And then to relate this back to the whole theme of searching for it, hopefully our answer to all these kinds of questions will colour in our conception of the good life. What is it to live the best life we can? Should we simply work towards happiness at all costs? Or are there some more valuable things to fight for, such as freedom? Whether you place your emphasis on freedom and authenticity, or on happiness and contentment, I hope that the kind of tensions that Huxley's Brave New World illuminates and some of these themes we looked at in this episode 
will help you hone in a bit deeper on what your own conception of it really is, what you think the good life is that you want to live, and how you can achieve it. So thanks for listening to today's episode, and I'll be back on the 2nd of September, the first Monday of September, with a bit of a different spin. We'll be looking at a modern group of do-gooders called Effective Altruists, and the thought that helping other people could be the best thing we could do with our lives, and how we can go about doing so most effectively. Until then, thanks for listening, and if you have a moment, please do subscribe and leave a review on your podcasting app of choice. You can also follow Searching For It on Facebook and Instagram to keep up with the latest updates. Or, if you'd like to pledge your support to the development of the show, please head to www.patreon.com forward slash searching for it. Thank you.